We're in the book of Acts, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. You can follow along uh, up on the screen. This is the word of the Lord. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed." And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Oropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that uh, there is a spirit that who lives and who moves, and that there is a God that uh, we get to not only know, um, uh, but a God who wants to be known. And in this time, uh, you know, as you speak to us through your word, you give us an opportunity to uh, maybe know you even more. And so draw us deeper into your presence. Help us to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are going through a series on the book of Acts, and uh, it's basically a book that shows us that the Holy Spirit empowered this movement of the gospel to spread beyond Jerusalem to all nations. And the early apostles were, were Jewish. And so what they began to do was they began to preach about the crucified Christ, this Messiah, to Jewish people starting in Jerusalem. And even though there are plenty of reasons for why a Jewish person would have rejected Jesus, you can also understand Uh, why a Jewish person might have believed in Jesus in those days because at least there's this kind of like shared scripture that they have from the what we call the Old Testament. Uh, In other words, there's like some overlap in terms of how they understood at least the nature of God and who God is. 
But then when you start to see the gospel go beyond Jerusalem to these foreign nations and these foreign cultures, you begin to see that the, the overlap maybe becomes less and less. And so therefore, a natural person might think, well, how are these people in this foreign culture going to receive uh, this message, this gospel message, when it seems like there is very little common shared or shared common ground? And therefore, maybe it, it seems like, you know, the gap to cross over from what people currently believe to now actually becoming a Christian and receiving the Christian faith uh, may seem like it's uh, much wider. But I think what the book of Acts shows us and what the book of Acts repeatedly shows us is uh, no matter how how short or how wide we think this gap is, uh, the Holy Spirit is at work and the Holy Spirit overcomes those obstacles and uh, I guess bridges that gap and allows people to come and to know and to receive Jesus and his gospel message. And so today what we're going to do is uh, we're going to look at Paul's ministry in Athens. And this would actually be a great passage if, like, uh, I don't know, we were doing, like, a teaching on, like, evangelism in New York City. Uh, It's, like, a great way in which Paul uh, engages the Athenians. But um, I'm not going to focus on that. I don't want this to be uh, uh, too uh, lecturish. But it's a very full passage, so I do want to organize it a little bit and basically just ask three questions. First question is this. Why is Paul's spirit provoked in the first place, okay? Second, how does Paul engage with the people? And third, what does he actually say here in this passage? So the first question, uh, why is Paul's spirit provoked? And the passage tells us that his spirit was provoked. And I don't really know if the English translation gets across, uh, I guess, the full uh, meaning of what uh, the Greek is saying, but uh, Paul here, he's, he's actually like very distressed and very upset with all these idols that he saw. And it's the same Greek word that is used to describe Paul's sharp disagreement that he had with Barnabas when they separated. It's also the same root uh, of, of the Greek translation of the Old Testament that describes God's anger uh, at Israel's disobedience and at idolatry. So I think at this point, when Paul is in Athens, you know, it says he's just waiting there. So he's not really doing that much. He's just kind of like chilling. And I imagine as he's waiting, maybe he starts to walk around and he starts to like observe everything around him and he sees his surroundings. And as he looks at his surroundings and at the culture around him, he sees that, whoa, this is a city that is full of idols. He sees all these statues and all these idols and his spirit gets provoked. He gets upset. You might even say he, he gets angry at this. And I wonder, I imagine like this kind of reaction may seem a little bit strange or foreign to us. Like why would he get so upset? After all, he's a foreigner. He's in this foreign culture and maybe he should have expected idols to be there because it's a part of Athenian culture. I remember uh, the summer after I graduated college, uh, I went to Thailand and I don't know if anybody has ever been to Thailand, but I, I actually remember noticing and saying, wow, there's like a lot of temples and there's a lot of idols here. There's a lot of like uh, Buddhist statues and, and things like that in this country. And I thought it was like strange, but I didn't react like Paul and I wasn't like upset or angry about it. And yet when Paul enters into this Athenian culture, it says his spirit is provoked. Why? I actually think maybe it shows how connected Paul was to the Spirit. When you're deeply connected to another person, uh, it's possible not simply to know what would upset that person, but sometimes you can actually feel upset 
like with that person or for that person, right? Isn't that what we call empathy? So I think what Paul had here, maybe we could call it like a spiritual empathy where he was so deeply connected with the Spirit of God that he was actually upset by the things that would upset God in seeing all these idols. And of course, it's safe to say, idolatry was something that has always invited God's displeasure all throughout Scripture. We have example after example after example of it. And Paul sees these idols and his spirit is provoked, just as God would be provoked. And this provoking is actually what leads him to now engage with these people in the work of uh, evangelism. And I think that's our first takeaway. The reason Paul engages with people with the gospel in the first place is ultimately because he's so connected to God that even his own spirit is provoked. He, he is provoked by the things that would provoke God. And I think uh, if anybody, any people, any church wants to be a people who actually hold, have a heart for mission and wants to engage in mission, I think first there has to be this deep connectedness to God. There has to be this deep union with God so much so that the things that would provoke God also provoke us. Now, Having said that, I think a lot of people might interpret uh, what Paul uh, is doing here as maybe he's being a little bit judgmental, right? Paul is judging the Athenians, and this is their culture. Who is Paul to judge uh, this culture? And if you were to meet someone like Paul, whose spirit was similarly provoked, uh, but came to New York, and then all of a sudden, like, everything that they observed in New York, they're like, whoa, this is, like, wrong. Like, God would be so displeased with this. I think a lot of us... Or a lot of people in New York would probably say, oh, that person's like a little strange. Why is that person being so judgmental of, uh, of this city? And sure, there is a sense in which one could be judgmental in like a self-righteous way, but it's not necessarily judgmental because getting upset with something that is not right, even if it's in anger, is not necessarily antithetical to love. The opposite of love would probably be indifference. And when you love someone deeply, then, yeah, you're going to get upset when you see something that offends that person. And I think the deeper love there is for God, I do think that the greater uh, our spirits from within us uh, ought to be provoked at the things that do not please God. And love of God should always be our entryway to this heart of mission. And that said, notice how Paul then engages the people right? So he's angry, he's upset, and this is our second point, and even though he's angry and upset at the idolatry, he doesn't come in and saying, shame on you, shame on you, and condemning everyone and casting aspersions. You might expect someone who's upset with what they see to do that, but that's not what Paul does. But rather, what does he do? He begins to reason with the people. He goes to the synagogue, and it says he reasons with the Jews. He goes to the marketplace And he reasons with the people who are there. That word reason, uh, the root of that word is actually dialogue. So he goes and he has has these conversations. He dialogues with them. He doesn't immediately preach, uh, but he starts to talk to people. Now, Athens. Athens is a very well-known city in ancient Greece. And uh, one of the reasons why it is so famous is it had a very rich philosophical tradition. So famous philosophers that um, we might even study today, philosophers like Socrates and Plato, they're from Athens. And Athens is this pluralistic city, and therefore people engage with 
new ideas all the time. That's what actually the passage says. That's why they want to hear from Paul, because he had a new idea, right? And perhaps they used like the things that Socrates taught, the Socratic method, and they questioned everything, and they asked a lot of questions, leading them to draw certain conclusions about some of the greater themes in life. And so what Paul does here is he begins to dialogue with these different people. He dialogues with the Epicureans, and he dialogues with the Stoic philosophers. Uh, Epicureans, they viewed uh, the gods as being somewhat distant and remote. We might call it like deism today. They uh, believe gods, the gods didn't engage in human affairs, and therefore the only thing that matters in this world is uh, mat- the material world, the things that we can see and touch. And therefore what they would say is uh, humans should pursue pleasure as much as possible and avoid pain as much as possible. That was like their guiding ethic. The Stoics were a little bit more on the pantheistic side in terms of their understanding of God, and they would say, you know what, the world is determined by fate, and therefore you should just accept your lot in life, and if you experience something hard, if you experience suffering, you just kind of need to accept it and endure it. This is fate. This is uh, what life has dealt you. And so some of these philosophers, they start to converse with Paul, and you know, they, they kind of call him names. They say he's a babbler. They say he's a preacher of foreign divinities. And then they take him to the Oropagus, and they say, hey, can you present this new teaching to us? And I guess that's the advantage of living in a culture like Athens. They were open to these foreign perspectives, and they did have a genuine intellectual interest in what Paul had to say about Jesus. So Paul shows us something important in the way that even in how he engages with these philosophers. Even though he looked around and he saw things that were not pleasing to God, he didn't immediately go out and like point it out and condemn them and say, God would not be happy with this. But rather, what does he do? He begins to have a conversation. He begins to dialogue. Even though they thought he was a babbler, he still talks to them. Conversation, a little bit of a lost art, I think. Uh, 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 a little bit of a part of, um, uh, maybe more so for like you younger kids, right? Conversation is important, right? Not just the, <laughs> right? Conversation is, is important, and it's, uh, I think an aspect that uh, Christian believers cannot afford to neglect. Now, <clears throat> I imagine, uh, it doesn't, the passage doesn't say this, so I'm just kind of imagining it, but I imagine maybe Paul himself is using the Socratic method. Maybe he's asking questions towards these philosophers as a way to engage them. After all, Jesus was also somebody who asked great questions. Maybe he's saying, well, why do you believe what you believe? How did you arrive at that conclusion? You claim you're not religious because you don't have a name to your God, but then why do you have all these like objects of worship around you? What is it that you think you are worshiping? Why do you think, uh, you know, cultures and society, why do you think you Athenians created these objects of worship? What purpose do they serve you? What if I told you that God could be known because he revealed himself to us? What if I told you that God came in the person of Jesus, was crucified, and after three days, he rose from the dead. How would that change what you believe? How might that change your understanding of life and death, and even life after death? And who knows what Paul says, but it sure was enough to pique their interest, so much so that they ask him to talk more about it. Uh, I don't know how many of you feel, uh, how many of you feel um, like, Uh, comfortable or uncomfortable about having conversations about faith in God. But I do think like maybe one of the things that, uh, especially in our culture, we're a little bit 
like nervous of or insecure about is like we don't want to come off like preachy right preaching down to people and i think that's a good good um i don't know a good sense to have uh but one way you can have spiritual conversations is ask good questions right that provoke people's thought then yeah you might get people to open up and they might be interested in what you believe and at least in this passage that seems to be what's happening to paul and so now we look at the final point. What, what does Paul actually say then, right? Uh, this little part of what Paul says could be its own sermon, but I'll keep it brief. The first thing he tells them, he's, he says, hey, you guys are very religious, right? Now, these Epicureans and these Stoics, uh, they're not people who necessarily like regularly pray. They're not people who would necessarily follow some kind of religious ritual, but still, Paul is calling them religious. He's saying, you are religious in every way. Why? Because uh, he's basically pointing out, hey, look, you and I, we share this common ground. All of humanity, we share this common ground in that everybody here worships something. Now, you may not call it worship, but there is something that captivates your heart. There is something that gives you a sense of meaning and purpose in your life. There is something that you turn to Uh, to have authority over you and whatever that thing is that is your object of worship and so even though these epicureans and stoics weren't part of any kind of formal religion they were religious because they're worshipers and we of course encounter people like that all the time Uh, i can almost guess what people would say if they're not somebody who uh, goes to church Uh, people people always say well i'm spiritual but not religious right spiritual but not religious and what that usually means is well i'm not affiliated or tied to any particular religion or religious institution but i do have like this generic sense of there's a higher power out there and um they don't want to be associated with the institution but they would still say you know i want to believe in something that is transcendent and uh, i would suggest that even those people are religious even though they would say i'm not religious i would say that in our age the object of worship is probably the individual self. And when someone says, I'm spiritual but not religious, all they're saying is, well, I want to have the authority to be able to shape uh, what I think God is. And I want to create my own sense of meaning and my own sense of identity and my own sense of purpose. And what is that? Well, that's, that's driven by the individual self. And so what would Paul do with that after he connects on common ground and after he says, We are all worshipers. He then points out that, hey, what you worship, you don't even know, right? You worship an unknown God. I I was walking around and I saw that to an unknown God. And that contrasts into what I believe in terms of who God is because the God that I know can be known and Paul is able to now tell them and share about this God. Uh, This is a part I could probably expand, but I'm just going to summarize what Paul says here about God. I get this from uh, John Stott, his commentary on Acts, but he has a nice, succinct way of organizing it. He says, Paul talks about God in five ways. God as creator, God as sustainer, God as ruler, God as father, and finally, God as judge. God created us, therefore, we can know where we came from. Because God, we know God created us. God sustains us. Therefore, we know what actually keeps us going. God rules the nations, and therefore, we know who orchestrates the events in history. God is Father. Therefore, we know that we can belong to him, and we can know him personally as a 
child relates to their father. And finally, God is judge, and therefore we know that all sin and evil will ultimately be addressed perfectly with perfect righteousness and perfect justice. And after talking about the God that he knows, then Paul talks about two things, repentance and resurrection. He says, God commands all people everywhere to repent, Uh, not just the uh, Jewish person in Jerusalem, but yes, even you Athenians. Now, for a modern person, again, in New York, I think they would say, well, that's a very narrow way of thinking, Paul. Uh, Paul, this is just a foreign culture. Uh, Who are you to impose your uh, understanding of God and your worldview to to the Athenians? And Paul is telling them to turn away from their idols, and uh, it's just their culture and their way of life. But in actuality, in the context of the Bible, what Paul is actually saying here is actually very open, inviting, and inclusive. Because he's basically saying, hey, look, there was a time when God wasn't accessible to all people. There was a time where uh, the nation of Israel was God's people. But this is a time, because of Jesus' death and resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit, this is a time where now God is accessible to all people, including you, Athenians. There's a reason you worshipped an unknown God because you didn't yet have access to the true and the living God because he had not revealed himself to you yet. But this is a time now where he wants to reveal himself to all people and where he wants all nations to come to him and to worship him and to receive salvation and forgiveness from him. And you have that because of Jesus. Yes, God is going to judge the world, and that's not actually unique. All gods, uh, all idols, I should say, will judge you too. There is a speech by <coughs> David Foster Wallace, and I think it gets referenced a lot by, uh, by pastors because in this speech he talks about worship, if you don't know who David Foster Wallace is, he's like this postmodern novelist. Uh, he wrote this re- really thick book called Infinite Jest. And if I were to guess, I would say it's like one of those books that a lot of people might buy but never read. <laughs> and you just kind of leave it on your bookshelf. I tried reading it once. It is like so hard to understand. Uh, there's a movie about him, though, uh, called The End of the Tour starring uh, Jason Siegel, the um, How I Met Your Mother guy. <clears throat> and uh, it's, it's a pretty good movie. But David Foster Wallace supposedly uh, a genius and some of the things he writes is like pretty insightful so he gives a speech and in this speech a uh, very insightful speech he's coming from the perspective again of not a not a christian not a religious person he says this but here's something else that's weird but true in the today trenches of adult life there's actually no such thing as atheism there's no such thing as not worshiping everybody worships the only choice we get is what to worship and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of god or spiritual type thing to worship be it jc or allah be it yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some uh set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive if you worship money and things if they are where you tap real meaning in life then you will never have enough never feel you have enough it's the truth Worship body and beauty and sexual allure, and you always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will 
need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. I think he taps into something very important. He understands something about the human heart, the the human heart that worships. He knows that whatever we worship ultimately is going to judge us, whether it's money, whether it's beauty, whether it's power, whether it's intellect. There will be a time of judgment, and these idols will judge us, and in that judgment, we will be destroyed and consumed. In that way, it's no different than what Paul says about the God that we worship, because Paul is also saying, hey, uh, God is going to send Jesus to come back as a judge, and he will come back and judge in righteousness. But here is what makes the God Paul is preaching about different from all the idols that he sees. All these other idols, all these other gods, if you fail them, they will never offer you forgiveness. You will inevitably end up in a place of condemnation. That is the nature of idols and idolatry. The God I worship sent Jesus who died on a cross so that he might extend forgiveness to us. And when we receive that forgiveness, it means this, that we don't have to end up in a place of being rejected. We don't have to end up in a place being condemned. Rather, we can end up in a place of being embraced in the loving arms of the Father. It means we don't have to live up to perfection for that embrace because there is a God who is gracious, who gives us life, salvation, and forgiveness out of his free grace. That's where we get our assurance from. Assurance, so underrated but so important. You know, when people... When people date today, uh, you know, nowadays you meet on like a, maybe a dating app and uh, it's a little bit, um, I guess when I, when I met my wife, uh, I don't think dating apps were really a thing. So I haven't really gone through that experience, but I can't imagine what it's like to like meet people and date through a dating app because basically what you're doing is you're putting yourself out there, you're putting your profile out there. And people just kind of accept you and reject you based on that profile. And how does that not make somebody feel incredibly insecure? How does that not make you feel anxious, right? How does that not make you like, doubt yourself if like, all these people aren't uh, accepting you? Right? That's, that's no way to really be in a relationship. And while marriage is difficult and challenging, I think that's one of the few contexts where you can actually experience uh, being yourself <coughs> with the assurance that you won't be entirely rejected for who you are because the marriage covenant compels you to love and to forgive and to reconcile with your spouse. And marriage, of course, is not the point of what I'm saying. Marriage is the analogy in terms of the kind of relationship that we have with God, this covenantal relationship. You know what Paul is showing the Athenians? He's showing them, hey, my God is different from your idols. My God sent Jesus was raised from the dead, and therefore his resurrection gives us great assurance that nothing will separate us from the love of God. His resurrection gives us assurance that in the end we won't stand condemned and our souls won't be destroyed because these idols will judge us and condemn us. His resurrection tells us our sin can be defeated, death can be defeated. And we have 
great assurance that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. That he can be our father, he can embrace us, we can belong to him, and we can rejoice because of him. Let's pray. God, we, um, <clears throat> we know that we're all worshipers, and uh, because of that, you know, the antidote to a lot, of, uh, a lot of things that we maybe go through and experience and feel and the things that we struggle with, um, maybe we could boil it down to a dysfunction in our worship. That too often times we're looking to uh, other things to provide us meaning and other things to give us salvation, and other things to show us grace. But in reality, it is only you that is able to do these things. And you've given us Jesus to demonstrate the lengths in which you would go to extend to us forgiveness, to show us how much your desire is for us to belong to you. And so, God, I pray that you would reveal more of your presence to us and give us a deep heart of worship, that in our worship we would experience the very antidote uh, to all of our dysfunction, and we would remember once again who you are and our deep connection to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.